The other thing that I'd add, this might not apply as much in the workplace, but definitely in terms of politics, I would say that frustrated maternal impulse is a very mm. politically potent and potentially dangerous force. Oh. And I th- yeah. And I think that, like, say, I don't know, attitudes towards refugees in the UK. This might not be as, as acute in the US, I don't know. But I... I all, any number of political causes, this is just one example, I... I think that the reason you see disproportionate numbers of young women who don't have children drawn mm. to these kind of high, like ch- highly charged, empathetic situations where you are like oh. trying to save groups oh. of people, right? Oh. Who may well be adult men, but I, I honestly think that a big part of that is it, it's it's like with get, it's like with getting the dogs, you know, it's this it's this tug towards mothering something is really that is strong. a good hot take. Would you like to know more? Hello, this is Malcolm Collins here today with, of course, my lovely wife, Simone Collins, and Luis Perry, our special guest today. Uh, you would may know her from the Maiden Mother Matriarch podcast, or you may know her from her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And if you do not know her, we recently did a tour in the UK talking with a lot of rising political, well, conservative political stars, because of course that's who talks to us. And she was repeatedly named as the number one conservative thought leader in the intellectual side in the UK right now. And so we are thrilled to have her on our podcast. The question I wanted to focus on was in this episode is how can we make dating work? Because I think if we look at the world today, everyone who is being honest is saying gender dynamics do not seem to be working right now. So what do you advise when you're advising young girls or young boys about how to go out there? Because let's be honest, they are in a dramatically worse situation than than we were. How do you advise them to go out there and find partners? And how might you build a new systems that could help them? It's really difficult. <laughs> and I say this as someone who's, I've been with my husband for 10 years and I, and I have that feeling of being the sort of um, last chopper out of Saigon, right? Because it was, because it was, because it was pre dating apps that we met and, and we just met through, it's through friends, the sort of good old fashioned, well, not quite good old fashioned, right? Like good old fashioned is actually an arranged marriage, but <laughs> there was this sort of like brief window, right? Post-sexual revolution, pre-dating apps where, where you generally met people through actual existing social connections. And I would always advise where possible to meet people through actual existing social connections, because mm-hmm. apart from anything else, it means you have some kind of vetting process available. The problem with a dating app is it's just a stranger from the internet. And they can, I mean, and and people will admit people who who like friends of mine, male and female, who've used dating apps will admit that they behave worse with people they've met on dating apps in terms of ghosting or whatever. Interesting, huh. because they know there are no social consequences because they know that they'll no one is going to then spread a rumor that they're that they're like a shitty person who ghosts people. This is you know particularly if you're in a big city like London, there are just so many millions of people that they disappear into the night. It's like it almost doesn't feel real. I think when you use a dating app so yeah real social connections is better it is difficult though I'm sure you've you've seen these graphs about how people meet over time and you you went from being like an enormous number of people met at church for instance (laughs) and Mm -hmm. then and then and then you see all of that stuff and or at work and then you see all of that stuff declining and um uh the apps taking their place and hey sometimes people do have flourishing marriages that started on the internet it's not you know it's not nothing one of the things that we've tried to do with the podcast 
is we had a we had a matchmaking event in London Ooh. a few months ago. Yeah, and we're going to do another one. We're planning on doing another one on Valentine's Day. In fact, I mean, I'll tell you, they are not a good way of making money because you have you can completely see why the people who created the apps are you know multi-millionaires yeah. plus right because it's the, the internet is like endlessly reproducible whereas in real life events are not endlessly reproducible and actually mm-hmm. a lot of work and effort into having I mean I think it was 60 people who came to the first one having all these 60 people in a room is actually very like logistically demanding but we thought no we're going to do it because <laughs> the the podcast if you're listening to my podcast that tells you something about your values. Yeah, right? it's culturally selective. They're exactly. somewhat aligned yeah. values. Well, yeah, it's, it's a very useful filter. What was the and structure if, of these events? So we got people to email, well, to fill in an online form where they gave some basic stuff, the kind of demographic details of photo and a few other things about like religiosity and stuff. And then we 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 mostly just we mostly selected on the basis of having even numbers of men and women and having roughly the same age ranges. Like for instance, we had we had like too many young men apply. So we had to exclude some of the young men because a 35 year old woman is not likely to be interested in a 20 year old man, right? Yeah. So we did a little bit of tailoring like that. And we'll do that for the future. I mean, people have requested, you know, specific age range events and things like that. So with sufficient demand, we can do that. But like, you can see why this isn't as popular as you'd hope, because it is it is like it's labor intensive and it's quite small numbers that you're dealing with. But it's also much, much higher quality because you're filtering on the basis of one. Everyone there had to want to get married. Like that was one of the key things. Hmm. So no one was there just to hook up. And everyone had, you could kind of have a basic assurance of shared values, which you can't really find anywhere else, except maybe in religious communities. But then yeah. I hear from, I mean, I, I have a friend, for instance, who met, who met his, who met his wife at like a young adults Catholic thing, you know, like you, you can, meeting through church is, is probably this, I would say meeting through extended friend, extended friend networks, meeting through church or whatever other religious organization now meeting through one of my podcast events is obviously at the top of the list because I want to be I want to be invited to the wedding but in terms of like the the you definitely want to be prioritizing real social connections but I do have enormous sympathy because like that does limit your pool a lot yeah so I want to pull on something you said because it's something we're doing for our kids and I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you were had you ever considered doing this for 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 your kid is <laughs> arranged marriages. Um, We are looking at specifically the way we're probably going to structure it is around the age of like 24, 25. They get a partner assigned to them that we chose from a network of other family friends who are open to doing this. And if you want to join, let us know. And we basically say, look, this is the one chance you get. Like, we're not going to find another partner for you. If you turn this down, then you're on your own. And it's funny. I mentioned this to a lot of like millennials and they're horrified. I mentioned this to Gen Z and they're like, oh my God, I wish my parents would do that for me. <laughs> Please relieve me of my suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So I think that probably the, the ideal, well, if you look at different, how different cultures deal with this problem, which is a mm. very, very difficult coordination problem. Like we must not understate how difficult this coordination problem is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's through like soft arranged marriages, right? It's yes. not the, you've never met this person mm. and you're betrothed at the age of 12 or something like that. Right. That is unusual. It's more likely you hear about that or you read about that in history more often because aristocrats would be more likely to do that but normal but normal people are normally not doing that it's more like you basically have a curated pool to choose from or you can choose and then we have to we can veto 
like yeah. the family can veto, which I think honestly is actually a great way of doing it because, yeah. and it, in practice, you know, often does, my, my husband and I often joke that sort of on paper, we could have been an arranged marriage in the sense that we have very kind of similar families. Mm. Like that, there's just lots of ways in which we're very socially sympathetic, right? As a couple, as it happens, we just got lucky, but you know, you can, I think that what does typically happen, honestly, in the best kind of matches is you you meet the person yourself, but the families have to be on board for it to actually work. And it soon becomes evident if the families are not on board and, and then maybe the relationship withers, you know. But any kind of scenario where the families are completely not on board is just is just so likely to end in tears. I mean, so, it's a, so yeah. if that's a soft arranged marriage then that probably is the ideal scenario. I think in the context of this, it's interesting to sort of reflect on how sort of crazy the way our society right now is. Like, we know we're supposed to find a spouse. So I think initially the idea was, well, you still get spouses, but then you get this younger age where, like, you you sleep around a bit and you get to play at what it's like to be in a relationship, but you still mm. basically get an arranged marriage. Like that is the soft arranged marriages, I think, are what we still had in the US, you know, up until like the 40s and the right. You know. yeah. um, and then it began to become like, okay, you actually test out a bunch of potential relationships, and then you choose when you think you have found one that could be a marriage now what's interesting is people don't do that they're now like no i'm gonna wait until i find the perfect one right which is a, mm. a very different thing but that's not even what they really do they sort of now what i've noticed i i think that this is actually the way things work in secular society even if secular society won't say this is you play musical chairs you you date random people and you have sex with random people until one day you realize holy shit i need to like the music is turned off i'm on the chair i'm sitting on and yeah. that's actually how i think things are structured right now a, a friend of mine has agrees with that with that analogy she actually funnily enough she this couple that we're friends with they actually met when they were teenagers so unusual yeah and now they're in their they're, they're married in their mid-30s but um with 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 them um, with a baby but the, the her line which always makes me laugh is, is like not only is it like playing musical chairs and therefore you know losing options with every every mm -hmm. round but also that those options are selected for badness right like <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason those chairs are still there and it's not right. some kind of dysfunction so I the worst possible advice that you hear so often and is so horrendous is that you should hold off on choosing a spouse until a certain age point. So yes, you should yes. you should not you should not choose a spouse, for instance, until you're in your thirties and there's something suspect about any relationship that starts before then. Like the university boyfriend must be dumped, for instance. Yes, you should you should yeah. dump the university boyfriend. Mm -hmm. You should you should try a few other musical chairs, and then you can actually start seriously thinking about settling down in your thirties. And even aside from the biological clock problem, which is a very serious one, yeah. like no, anyone who's anyone who's in the same boat as you in their thirties and 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 for some reason unmarried, unless they've been like widowed, there might be a good reason <laughs> why they're not married. Like there yeah. might be some kind of whatever like aversion to commitment like a whole host of a whole host of reasons why people would have selected themselves into that category yeah I, so one thing i would advise so this is for our younger listeners because it's advice i would give my kids is the one place i think secular society does give good advice on this is you probably shouldn't marry someone you're dating in high school or middle school mm. um and the reason i say high school you know because this is where this is most likely to happen 
is because these are the first times you're feeling these emotions and you don't understand that, you know, this is just a random person who you happen to have met. And you are unlikely to because you just haven't been exposed to that many people in high school to really have found that optimized person. I think college is when you really should, like you should aim yeah. 70% to find who you're going to marry in the years, if you don't go to college, in the years you would have been in college. Yeah, like, yeah. I think get, that's, get, yeah. yeah, don't get your BA, get your MRS, right? That's, <laughs> exactly. That was, that was a joke among older generations. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you couldn't, do you remember Princeton mum? No. Princeton mom. She was this woman who was, this was a few years ago now, Who whose children, one child maybe was at Princeton and she had been to Princeton herself. And she wrote a sort of letter to young to female students in the college magazine. Oh, Do you I remember. remember and it was, yeah. it was so controversial, but she was completely right. She said, you know, listen, listen, ladies, like you are never going to be surrounded by this many eligible young men ever again in your life mm-hmm. who are who are single, who are selected for their intellect, conscientious, all these good things. And like, you have nothing to like, come on, like university students are so idle. You have basically nothing to do. You should, you should be trying to find a spouse. That should be your goal. And yeah. it, was, it was incredibly controversial. And, and the good ones do get snatched up. I don't think yeah. that's the thing, you know, there's these, the, in a way we're always sort of like, we get annoyed by progressive culture, but we're always like, it always ends up punishing the progressives the most, you know, yeah. the ones who are susceptible to these ideas. They're the ones who aren't lapping up guys. The, the young aggressive conservative women are the ones leaving the college with all the most emotionally stable, caring guys. And that's why when women are like, Oh, there's no good men anymore. It's like, yeah, cause you missed them. You had your right. chance, yeah. I, mean, um, I I make fun of progressives, right? Because obviously it's yeah. it, it's fun to do so. But I'm saying this as someone who who used to be a progressive, right? And I, I basically just got lucky in, in getting in finding my spouse when I did. It wasn't through like especially good judgment. It was just pure luck. Yeah. And actually, you know, like for all that we for all that we make fun of them rightly, and I'm not talking about the really crazy blue haired kind of end of the spectrum. I'm just talking about sort of normal. Middle, yeah. middle class progressive you know they're actually great people generally right they're yeah. generally like hard-working conscientious like talented intelligent economically productive all this kind of stuff like i i actually really really desperately want the best for these people and the culture the progressive culture actually as you say it hurts progressives most it actually channels people towards making decisions which are really bad for them long term and and mean that they don't reproduce themselves as well yeah, oh. I heard recently about one governor. I don't I haven't looked this up properly, so it may not be true. But the governor of Utah actually hosting a lot of events in the governor's mansion, but not necessarily just for matchmaking. Like he's hosted events where he's just having like everyone who's into fly fishing, you know, come over for a party at the governor's mansion. Everyone who's, you know, a married couple over, you know, 60 years old, like come. And it, the, the goal, I think, was to just start connecting people more. Because even in a place like Utah, which is insane, I mean, it's, it's you know, dominated by the LDS community. There mm-hmm. are tons of institutions where people are meeting, at least as long as they're Mormon, a lot of people. But even there, he feels like there's a need for people to foster more connection, that it's even really hard to make friends anywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. this isn't just a dating problem. This is a friendship problem. Rates of mm-hmm. friendship are down. People report having fewer numbers of friends. I'm wondering if you think this is something where the government is right to get involved or wrong to get involved. Like if governments and some governments and other nations have started organizing matchmaking events for youth, matchmaking retreats for youth, would that be scary or dystopian to you? Or would it be cool and encouraging? Doesn't the government basically do that with higher education? 
I mean, going back to the meeting in college. Not really, thing. because it, it, there's a lot of disincentivizing people. Yeah. Now, it now could, if it the could government, do so through higher education. And we've heard many people yeah. with regard to demographic collapse saying like, well, you know, a really awesome thing a government could do is for any government sponsored or supported university, you could give women entirely free tuition or room and board, some kind of incentive that mm -hmm. not every student gets so long as they promise to graduate perhaps in a longer period, like they have more years to do it with a child. And then they have mm -hmm. a child while they're at university, they meet their mm -hmm. spouse at university. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think it really would create a big incentive. So mm -hmm. do you think something like that would be a, a, a good thing? Or do you think it would be too on the coercive side? Well, look, I sort of think that that, that ship has already sailed in terms mm. of the amount that the government interferes in our lives in all sorts of ways, right? I mean, the first yeah. thing on my list would be to stop, I mean, the, the UK government, although this is, of course, true elsewhere from doing like explicitly antinatalist things. I mean, like the way that our tax system works in this country is insane. For instance, you it, stay at families with a stay at home parent, typically mother. Um, pay a tax penalty, for instance, in this country, right? There are all sorts of things which is like That's radically fine. anti, and right, radically anti-traditional family. So, you know, if we've already accepted, for instance, that the government is in the business of educating everyone, if the government is in the business of like providing socialized healthcare and things like that, then you might as well pull levers to try and encourage people to make decisions which are in the interest of the country long term. Because, of course, that's yeah. what we're talking about, right? These are these are these are questions of national importance. I like that idea of another idea I've heard is to give free tuition to mothers. So mm. because one of the things that would be useful is to is to I mean, women live longer than men. Right. And women also everyone lives a long time in Western societies. Why is it that we have to we have to encourage women in say their mid twenties, the peak fertility period, to be investing in their careers mm -hmm. when they could just delay that section of their lives by five to ten years and then work an extra five to ten years at the end? You know, if we if we could, the, the problem is that the current career, the current career plan is designed for a male life cycle. It's not designed yes. for the male Unless life cycle. Unless you, you start right at university. Like if you get mm. married freshman year, yeah. have a kid, like you could have two kids before you graduate if you take four yeah. years to graduate. And, this, and, then you can, and then if you stay at home with them pre, as preschoolers, you're still entering the labor market in your mid to late 20s. It's yeah. not yeah. that and big And with a, a fresh yeah. degree. Because yeah. yeah. the, yes. the bigger problem yeah. too is that women get their degree, they work a little bit, and then they take this huge gap from working. And then, you know, the degree is no longer fresh and their job isn't fresh. Like if you can somehow get everything, like you, you sort of finish most of your time off the market as a parent, like right as well, your degree. That's only fresh. two kids, you know, yeah. the key is yeah. that you don't take yourself off the market because you're a parent that's or true. Yeah. you do, you, you have a real structure for that. A really interesting, if extreme pronatalist policy, a uh, young college age girl we know proposed for Korea, you know, given how absolutely severe their case is right now is to make it so that as a woman, you cannot graduate Korean college until after you have had your first kid. And so you could start college before that, but you don't get your degree until you have a kid. And given how important college degrees are within the Korean status hierarchy, this would immediately and dramatically affect the number of kids people were having. Of course, it is a little coercive for my taste, but it would be effective. 
But I think a really key problem that we keep having here, and this was shocking to me when we were in the UK, we're meeting with a lot of conservative, you know, leading intellectuals, policymakers, stuff like that, but a lot of them young women. Mm -hmm. And I repeatedly kept seeing them making the same mistake over and over again in regards to their relationships, which is they had found people they wanted to marry. And they're like, yeah, but of course we need to be dating for like three years before we can get married. And I was like, what the are you talking about if you found someone who is good for you to marry you need to aggressively vet them and marry them within like three months or six months like don't get a dog yes that's another tip (laughs) don't get a dog don't get a dog as a practice baby because one dogs are bad practice babies two it'll encourage you to delay having your first child and three Dogs are really annoying when you have a baby. (laughs) They're worse than practice babies. They are not meant to teach women how to have babies. They're meant to masturbate the instinct that women feel to have a baby. Yes. Yeah. They're a displacement tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, but the, the number of like, yeah, the number of yuppie couples in our sort of extended social network who are like, okay, so we meet at X and then we, and then we live together after, after Y and then we get a dog (laughs) after Z and then it's like 10 years down the track that you have a baby. Well, and I think the way to, to do this is to frame having a dog without having a child as perverse. And and I do that when I, I mean, I see that as like walking around with pornography in your hand. It's like, <laughs> it, it's the same thing. You are using it to, to masturbate an instinct that evolved to get you to do what you were supposed to be doing, which is having a loving family. And instead... Uh, you you subvert that instinct and it may feel good in the moment when you're playing with the big cute little puppy but in the long term it's causing you and your spouse significant emotional distress like well here's here's the thing that I'm kind of thinking about while I'm listening to this conversation though I, I'm, I'm feeling like teen pregnancy is the most feminist option for an intergenerational durable culture because hear me out right like if you weren't to start in college but instead in high school then you have the support of your parents for the first baby, which honestly, like in a modern society in which, you know, we're more atomized and everything, you know, we we cannot expect as adults to have our parents move in with us to, you know, always mm. be living in the same place because they may be a lot older as well. That, I'm yeah, going to them very strong on this, Simone. You don't want to be a teen dad. No, I don't think that women can appropriately find good long term partners in their teen yeah. years. Because you do not know where the guy is going to turn out in terms of competence. I think a guy who like has his shit together in college is somebody who's going to have their shit together. Okay. So yeah, we're talking statutory rape teen marriage. That's what we're looking for (laughs) where you have, you know, a very good, you know, successful college grad, male college grad, you have, you know, 16 year old girl. Okay. Yeah. I suppose I am okay with teen marriage if they're dating college guys. And that sounds so wrong, but it would be so like, cause then, you know, the, the girl could have three or four or even five children from high school through the end of college, get a great education, have an amazing family support network, have all the flexibility to both learn, develop really good skills and have help with children at the same time. And then by the time she really needs to like lean into her career and like just kill it in the workforce, She's good. And then also once she's old, she doesn't, you know. We got to be clear. This is mostly meant uh, uh, jocularly as a joke in our society right now because uh, while you could conceivably create a society that worked around the system she's talking about, that is not the society that we actually live in. And anyone who attempted this would be very likely to end up a single mother, which is why it would be really stupid. I mean, this also comes down to my general advice of not trying to find a partner in high school because I know a lot of guys 
who seemed like they had their lives together in high school, but actually didn't have their lives together. And yeah. a lot of guys who didn't look like they had their lives together in high school who actually did. I mean, it's actually like the nerdy, like rocket hobbyist kid who is the kid who made a lot of money and the and the jock captain of the football team who's more likely to fall off but by the time you get to i'd say like junior year of college you can broadly tell who's going to have their life together as an adult and who can't and that's mm -hmm. why that's a good age to begin to and not begin to to begin to finalize who you're going to marry not mm -hmm. not to start practice dating uh, high school is for practice dating college is not practice anymore but anyway. another concern i i have about starting a parental career first like if i'm thinking about this from the perspective of a mother is i wouldn't want one of my children or both like male or female to like start as a parent and be really into it and then be like no i don't want to do anything else because i want our children to also grow up and, and have impact on larger society and i feel like they have a moral obligation to do that if they have the skill and connections and ability to do it like they should be making society better also we live a long time right like yeah. you, you know there there is a i suppose one way you can do it is if you have so many kids you know if you have an incredibly long i don't know if you know that the tv chef gordon ramsay british yeah. british celebrity right his wife just had her sixth child age 49 and she had her 49. first right and she had her first child when she was 24 so she's had this incredibly long reproductive career i know i, I like amazing right it's a really interesting fact actually how many celebrities who didn't go to university who come from working class families end up having loads of kids i'm sure you know that there's in the quadrant of like you know x-axis is education and y-axis mm -hmm. is 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 income yeah. it's the high education low income people who have the fewest kids and it's the high income low education people who have the most and you see there's like premiership footballers who have loads of kids anyway it's 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 a lovely site so sh you know so one scenario i guess is that you have so many kids over such a long you know not necessarily tight the pack you know three or four year age gaps which is the standard for hunter gatherers right so that's quite a healthy like physiologically that's quite a healthy age gap you have lots of kids with 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 moderate age gaps and then by the time your youngest is grown up you have grandchildren so mm -hmm. then you do basically spend your entire life just looking at children like that is one scenario but many women are going to have two or three in our ideal and that's completely that's that's great and that doesn't actually take up that much of your life therefore so to have to say you know for this you, you don't want this scenario i think where women women are excluded from the workforce between the age of say 40 and 60. one so reason no, for no good so, reason yeah no that it, that's 100 correct we yeah. we're so obsessed with having like four or five six because when you look at societal trends in and the number of people who choose not to have any children at all or even yeah, just yeah, one yeah. like so you know we have to make up for it somewhere mm -hmm. plus there's one really interesting bit of research that people did at one point looking at i think people malcolm was it in norway or was it sweden but looking sweden. intergenerationally oh, okay. i saw that as well yeah, yeah yeah so like you know yeah. having just two kids is very y y your odds of having a great grandchild are so low so we think about it from yeah. that perspective too so mm. another thing to note because you know this is something that keeps getting said on this this podcast which is make sure women can can work and participate in the workforce and i think a lot of people they may hear this and they might say that's anti-conservative that's anti-traditional there was a great the, the most recent nobel prize winner i want to say in economics actually did a piece on this and i'm going to put the graph on the screen here 
which shows that actually, no, women used to participate in the workforce at around the rate they do today. There was just a historical period where it went down mm. for, a, a, frankly, in a historical context, a fairly short period, mm. which was really at its height in like the 1950s. But if you go earlier than like the 1920s, and then especially if you go into the early 1800s, female participation in the workforce was almost as high as male participation. But it was often from home. And that's the key thing. Yeah. 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 yeah so it's more about having sex specific jobs, mm -hmm. which yeah. like most societies do end up basically. I mean, we do, frankly. We like, do. Yeah. We, yeah we, it's just not explicit. But having the type of job which is easily combinable with having children is 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 the way of threading that needle the problem is that the influx of women post second wave the influx of middle class women into traditionally male dominated jobs has not produced you know like the plight of the female doctor yeah. for instance like i was i was i was i saw a friend yesterday who's a doctor who has a, a baby and she, it's basically impossible for her at this stage to combine motherhood <coughs> with being a doctor yeah oh absolutely um, there is there are points later on where you could but she had a baby you know like too young right late 20s not oh. very young but within like basically the, the way that nhs medical training works is mm -hmm. it depends on abortion it depends on like you and and contraception it, de it depends on women delaying having children until they're at least in their 30s because if you have a child any earlier than that it will be almost impossible for you to progress in your career you just yeah. have to take an enormous break or drop out entirely which a lot of women do so like that's an example of a career which is now majority female in terms of medical student gradu graduates mm. that is completely incompatible with childbearing so yeah. you end up with all these all these all these accomplished women shredding their fertility for the sake of a medical career and or this... their careers which is just as bad uh, i mean de depending on what you care about like it's, it's it's terrible that, that women are with this kind of potential are just saying, well, I guess society's not going to get my help, you know, as a medical right, professional. Right. Like, the NHS really needs yep. really good doctors. And I, I think what's so fun about this too, is that this is super tractable. Like if the right number of, you know, people high in the NHS in, in the way it's, it's operations run were to decide we're going to fix this, this is, you know, a policy change we're going to make, or, you know, we're going to accommodate childcare in this way or whatever, like they mm. can fix this problem. And mm. this is a really similar thing with female lawyers, mothers, lawyers who are mothers in the United States. There are, I think there's a certain number of minimum hours that mothers, that lawyers, sorry, have to work in order to qualify and like maintain all their licensing. So, effectively female lawyers in many states can't work part-time mm. and also maintain their ability mm. to practice law and this is stuff i never even heard about before we started talking with people about pronatalism so there are so many really dumb things that we do to even just penalize parenthood when you know yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. There's enough. Well, you can you can look at this and see how solvable a lot of pronatalist issues are and 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 why we need to be working on this front at the policy level you know, when you say, how can you, with the skills of a doctor, make money and contribute to society while being a mother? Well, I mean, historically, you, you could probably do that in the old model of doctor, which is to be a home care doctor, you know, to travel house to house to do. Mm. And it would probably be much cheaper to operate than our existing systems. But you have some big bureaucracy like the NI. NHS and they're not going to be able to do that. You look at medical regulation in the US and people are going to push back on that. You right. look at the lawyer thing that you were talking about. If you actually let them operate within a sane structure. Now, and this is I, one of the policies that I am most pro as a pronatalist policy for, for sane family structures that I have not seen any politician push yet is one where if a company is going to demand that an individual works from the office, that they have to prove that they are getting 
incrementally more productivity from that demand. Mm -hmm. I do not think that blanketly companies should be allowed to demand that people work from the office. I think that it's a demand that can only be made with evidence. Similar to like if I was bringing over an immigrant. And this is going to freak out a lot of these, I I'd say, fragile CEOs. Uh, but as people who are CEOs who have worked with people working at home and in the office, whenever you see, and we've, we've written about this in our book on governance and, and, and running companies, and we've lectured about this, like Stanford and stuff like this. Every time I see a CEO of a large company saying, oh, it's just not working. We have to bring people back to the office. I've never once seen them provide evidence. Whenever somebody says, oh, we're going to let people work from home or we're going to extend our work from home program, that's always accompanied by evidence. Why is that? Why is it that no one seems to be able to show actual evidence? That well, and, and there are a couple of reasons why, right? I mean, like a lot of people implement the back to the office policies because they want to lay people off. Yeah. And that's a really easy way to do it. And That's what we think Elon was doing. The, the other really bad reason that exists out there, though, which we've seen, we can totally vouch for this, is, is a form of office theater where basically a lot of people, like Malcolm says, have really delicate egos and they need yeah. their peons around them scurrying through the offices to make them feel important. And it's just this like traditional vision of like, Sorry, it's I, not I, real. I want to elaborate on what something you said there because I don't know if our audience would immediately understand what you meant. When she says they want to lay them off, in, in a lot of developed countries right now, if you just lay somebody off randomly as a company, you have to pay uh, some sort of financial penalty for that. But if you told them to come to an office and then you said, oh, look, they couldn't make it to the office after you had them like move all over the country because you said <laughs> they could work wherever they want, well, then you don't need to pay that penalty. And so it can be used as sort of a trap, which of course, legally, I don't think is something we should be allowing because you shouldn't be able to to demand people come back to the office. And if that was the case, then people couldn't pull these shenanigans. No, we also, I mean, we're very much in the you should be able to fire someone at will kind of mindset. Yeah. Too, so. I mean, also, even if that costs, so we agree that remote working is pronatal, right? But like, yes. even if there are costs to say productivity for remote workers, or like the example, example that my friend gave yesterday, is that one of the challenges of her stage of medical training is that she gets a lot of she gets she gets given a rotor which changes week to week. Hmm. And she has no choice about that. Hmm. So she's she's told, you know, you'll be doing you'll be doing an early shift this week and then next week, like it's basically completely impossible to arrange formal childcare around that kind of rota. Okay. Either you have, so, so basically you either just drop out entirely or you have a partner who's, whose job is incredibly flexible or you have say a grandparent who can provide, who's around the corner and can provide full-time including overnight childcare. Like this is very, very demanding expectation. Uh, uh, like uh, another example of the NHS being stupidly, antenatal is another doctor friend I know lots of doctors because I used to go like I was I'm a medical school dropout yeah there but for the grace of God when she had a baby at medical school as a single mother unplanned but you know peak peak fertility and um, she wanted to be given a job out of out of university near her mother so that her mother could help with overnight childcare. Smart. Her, right. Mm -hmm. And it was like pulling teeth trying to get the NHS to give her this job because they had it, they, they could understand if you had a spouse who was living somewhere, they could understand if you had a child in school, like there were certain things where they- But not a childcare resource. But not, but not a grandparent. That didn't count as a sort of, like an mm -hmm. important locus that you would need to be based around, right? All of these kind of examples, like, 
And it probably is the case that mm. if, say, you have, let's say you have a parent-friendly rotor is what is like an option you can choose if you have a child of a certain age. And let's say you had special provision that you could choose, you had more choice over where you were allocated your first job if you had a child, things like that. It Like it, it would come with costs. You know, there would be like, I think it's, I don't think that we should pretend like there wouldn't be downside for the employer from providing that kind of provision. But what we're talking about here is like the survival of our civilization, right? You can't be kind of too, like the birth rates thing is so important and people don't yet realize how important it is that we should be accommodating those kinds of trade-offs very, very comfortably. Mm -hmm. And the state should be demanding that employers just, just, just eat those yeah. trade-offs because like we're talking like some decades down the line where everything starts to go to pieces if we don't. Yeah. Well, and also, uh, at least traditionally, there was this perception that male fathers were better hires, right? Because they needed the stability. They would be loyal to the company. You could count on them because they had a family to support. And I, I really resent that this is not the same for female mothers you accommodate because it when you get a mother working for you who's really talented and who you accommodate, she, one, is amazing talent, and it's really hard to retain talent these days. And if you give her all the flexibility she needs to, you know, do her job, which she probably loves if she's really good at it, and take care of her kids, she'll stay with you and she'll often go above and beyond. And we see this with our, our we, we have a company that we run. It's mostly female. There are lots of new mothers. There's, there's a pregnant mother aside from me. Like, we're extremely accommodating. We're like, just whatever, take whatever time you want, work remotely, like work with your kids. We really don't care. And everyone who is a mother is so hard. They're like among our, yeah, everyone, actually every one of our top players is a mother. This is, this um, is really so interesting. So, uh, in a previous episode we had talked about, cause we've read these cases of like women who hypothetically try to create all women companies mm -hmm. and they always end up like with everyone tearing each other down and like fighting. And like our company is almost all women and everyone in there who's not a woman is a gay man, except for me. Like our company disproportionately hires gay people and, and, and women. And it has no no drama at all anymore. And it's it's really like a healthy place to work. And I suspect the difference is, is that other company was hiring women who didn't have kids. Mm. And our company specifically often hires mothers. Well, maybe this also comes down to the difference between the maiden and the mother and the matriarch. The, yeah, yeah. The mother is in a very different cooperative sort of phase in life, whereas like the yeah. maidens are far more likely to be competitive, to be, you know, trying to show something. Um, and maybe there's something about that, like leaning into that the different life phases that women mm. have. I think you're absolutely right because a maid is is competing for a mate, right? So there is a reason mm -hmm. to undermine other women in, mm -hmm. in sort of status hierarchies and in competition, whereas the mother uh, has almost no reason to undermine other women because what they would be optimizing for is cooperation and child rearing and, and the status just doesn't matter as much because they mm -hmm. already have secured their mate. Yeah, safety and cooperation and all that. And that leads it to great employees. The other thing that I'd add, this might not apply as much in the workplace, but definitely in terms of politics, I would say that frustrated maternal impulse is a very mm. politically potent and potentially dangerous force. Oh. And I yeah. And I think that, like, say, I don't know, attitudes towards refugees in the UK. This might not be as, as acute in the US, I don't know. But I... I or Any number of political causes, this is just one example, I... I think that the reason you see disproportionate numbers of young women who don't have children 
drawn to these kind of high, like ch- highly charged, empathetic situations where you are like trying oh. to save groups oh. of people, right? Oh. Who may well be adult men, but I, I honestly think that a big part of that is it, it's, it's like with get, it's like with getting the dogs. You know, it's this it's this tug towards mothering something is really that is strong. a good hot take. Yeah, I I like that take. I'm gonna have <laughs> a little blurb at the beginning of the video here. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I I really enjoyed it. If people want more conversations from us, uh, one thing they can also check out is not just other or other podcast episode with you, but Simone has done an episode of your show, so that's a oh, good yeah. thing to check out. Made yep. Mother Matriarch, and hopefully, I'll do an episode of the near future. And uh, yeah, it has been a joy to have you here. So please do go check out her podcast. And if you want more really in it, there is one already out there with Simone. Mm, thank you so much for joining us. This was amazing. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Okay. And then are you working on another book? Like what's next? What can we, we you know, when, when will we have you back on? Because you have something new to promote. So I'm, I'm, well, I'm writing the case for having kids. So that's my next book.